For the gardenistas among you, uh, Peter Donegan will be a familiar name, a renowned landscape designer, a co-host of a successful podcast. He's been on the telly, <laughs> garden makeover shows in Ireland. So when he visited Melbourne, and way back in March for the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show, friend of the program, and at that time, director of the Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria, Tim Entwistle. Tim was keen to have a chat, and it's timely to hear it now because Peter is back in the country, keynote speaker at an Australian Institute of Horticulture conference in Queensland late in October. Tim began by asking Peter, where was he from? I'm from a small town called Ballybottle in the north county of Dublin. Uh, funnily enough, and, and not a lot of people maybe realise, about 55% of Ireland's vegetables are grown in that little pocket of North County Dublin around where I live, yeah. And you're a designer, though, who's gone, obviously, internationally. You're in Melbourne at the moment, and I know you've worked uh, a couple of times in France at an old chateau, bringing a little bit of, the, of Irish sensibilities to those designs as well. A little bit. I, th I think the, the importance of the designs, and I, I'll say it as in Melbourne, I'll say it in France or Germany, wherever we're working, I think the importance is that you walk away and when you're gone, the people there don't have the, the Peter Donegan Memorial Garden, if I may, but you, you complement or take what they actually need as a garden into consideration. So if it ends up in the garden, that's fantastic, but it's only by... By default, I guess, it's the right thing to do for the place and the people. Now, if there was going to be a Peter Donegan Memorial Garden, and I hope that's <laughs> not going to happen soon, uh, I want to know, particularly for today's chat, what what trees would be in there and perhaps what your, your favourite tree, whether this is used in your landscape design or whether this is in nature... Uh, we're in the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, and I don't know that we can find every tree that you'll be interested in. But you tell me your top, your top couple. I think there's there's two in my head, and the first one is the Crataegus monogyna or the hawthorn tree. It's known in Dublin or Ireland, my apologies, as uh, what would be used as a, a hedge or hedgerow around the, the farmlands predominantly. Uh, similar climate uh, to an extent in northern France, but we've used it as, uh, I guess, an ornamental or more what people would know as a show garden style tree, uh, just pruned differently. I think the thing that always caught my imagination or fascination was that ultimately you can take these almost down to the butt and redo what others might know as hedge laying but for about one, two weeks of the year while the weather is still brutal and the snow is still down, you've got an edible bud, you've got edible little pips and the glossy green comes out when everything else is asleep and it, it fascinates me always that it, it, the, the ugly duckling, if you will, has but one moment to shine before everybody else walks into the ball. Well, that, that's a lovely analogy or... or, or metaphor I'm not quite sure what That's what okay. a beautiful beautiful idea and I think it fits perfectly in Australia because the hawthorn is treated here as a bit of a weed and it's quite a serious weed in farmland but if you go to Tasmania there are some spectacular hawthorn hedges which I saw in flower 
just recently, some white flowered, some pink flowered, yeah. and they and they're, they're they're starting to repair those and take them back to how they were originally designed. And some some great apparently some professional hedges, mm. if, if that's the terminology, yeah. uh, in in Tasmania. So I can that sort of ugly duckling fits in Australia. It, it's funny how plants ebb and flow, and we were speaking about this yesterday where the eucalyptus gunii, when I was going through college working in garden centres, was the tree of choice, and then it became the, the, the poplar, which is a, another farmland tree for, for shelter belts. Uh, but now, of the last couple of years, because some of the flower shows were delayed for reasons we won't discuss and everybody's aware of, the latter, the moving of shows from June to September made all of a sudden the, the ugly duckling, if you will, really become a little bit of star of the show because none of the others were available. And, and sometimes that's no harm. But I just, I have to say that beautiful glossy green when it pops on the bare stems, it's just magical. It's the start of spring. Well, we, as it happens, I don't think we even have one in the gardens here, which is a real shame. I'm now thinking we perhaps should sneak a couple in. But, but I've, I've taken you over to an arbutus, which is <laughs> it's a different species to the one that perhaps you're familiar with in, in Ireland. So this is from Mexico. It's called glandulosa. But I've, um, I have a bit of a fondness for that tree. I, I've certainly enjoyed seeing it in Spain, particularly where you get these very old uh, Arbutus. Now, my father calls them the Irish strawberry tree, and I'm, I, it sounds offensive to me, but what do you call them in, in Ireland? Well, we've uh, the main variety is an Arbutus unido, U-N-E-D-O, and that would be known to us as the Kilkenny strawberry tree. And I, I think I was saying to you before, we came on air at, at seven years of age when, when this not-so-geeky, but then very geeky young kid was growing plants under his bed when Cliff Richard was as exciting as things got in the music department. Notice. Can, I, can I just quickly add here, this is, we're talking about you? you we're talking <laughs> about me and, and Ireland in 1983 and all of a sudden, I, I kid you not, I'm walking through a park and, and there's an Arbutus in, in full fruit and it just blew my head because nothing was that flamboyant the the i guess how landscape design maybe and how trees were planted or how they were imported it, it wasn't really that but this was in the middle of a park it was in the middle of a public domain and and it just blew my head and it fed i guess the intrigue in my brain to how does this happen but you're back to that where each plant has one moment within its calendar to to put on the bright lights and and put and make itself you know shine for its future reproduction sake and ultimately that's what it comes back to. And perhaps that's a, a little different too to some plants we walked past before, which I know took your attention. We we stopped longer at this garden than any any of the others, and that was the cactus garden, the arid garden, yeah, and, yeah. and Guilfoyle's volcano. And you were looking at the barrel cacti there, and I and almost couldn't take your eyes off them. I, I, it was one of the first plants that I learned how to re, to reproduce or, or replicate or, or take, if I may, propagate would be the word. But growing them under my, my bed was one of the things. The only thing was it took a lot longer for them to um, lean towards light, what, what I would know and you would know as pho phototropism. I had to figure that out at seven years of age and wonder why it wasn't happening as fast. So this is the plant being attracted towards the light? Yeah, 
but but in my infantile too many reasons to ask why it was my dad wasn't into horticulture or gardening neither was mom but at the time to go and you can google it now that very why the plants lean towards light but in 1984-85 I needed to be escorted by my older sister to the library to try and reverse engineer it and that whole process took two years at the time now it's a little bit easier I sound very old but but cacti were things that we would have seen on movies they were also terribly expensive and the propagation techniques took a lot longer than maybe say a standard geranium cutting which you can do in a tray of water or a bit like uh, children growing carrot tops in a saucer of water it didn't happen as fast with cacti and checking to see if the roots had even started to develop so i used to i started to grow them in glass same way people might do with a hyacinth bulb sitting on pebbles yeah oh that's fascinating and i suppose that also returning back to your hawthorn as your your favorite tree uh, it's always interesting in, in design, I think, to look at which plants are chosen. And the design you're doing in Melbourne has one, one tree in it, one large tree which has a, a shadow mm. uh, over water, yeah. uh, black water. And to, to choose that species must be quite tricky as well. To, you know, what, what's, what one tree do you put in a garden in Melbourne as an Irish designer uh, trying to tell mm. a story of some kind? Well, ultimately, it's a, it's a, the, the story of the garden is a love story. And what was intended to go in, should it have been built in Ireland, was a long name alert for your listeners. My apologies here. But a Gladitia triacanthus sunburst. And the last word being the operative one, it is a ray of sunshine. It's unbelievable within a sea of matte dark green when you see this. It's like a a lighthouse beacon pointing only at you and not circulating around and because we're going into our spring in Dublin at this moment in time and you're heading I guess into your autumn we've had to change it to long name alert my apologies again but Illyria dendron tulipifera and uh, which, which we call the tulip tree. Yes, I figured I found that out and I now understand why but because it's going mildly autumnal we are literally at the beautiful tipping point of the leaves starting to turn yellow. Another two weeks' time, if temperatures hadn't have worked in our favour, and the tree would either A, be leafless, or B, completely matte green. But it's just at that absolute maximum beautiful point. So, yeah, I, so for a show garden, of course, it's the timing is all, isn't it? And, and what that tree looks like for those couple of weeks is critical, whereas the other trees you've mentioned have these cycles and they do things and you watch them and you wait for them. Yeah, I, well, I, I think the funny thing is, Tim, when you, when you take the garden that we have without putting it in a picture frame, the tree gets more coverage because of the reflection and because it's eight metres tall. But it's eight metres tall reflecting over a, an ultimately a 13 metre long lake or pond, if I may. Uh, and it's a again a childlike thing in my head where the trees are usually backdrop not always but invariably they become backdrop or part of a landscape if you will and i just wanted one showstopper to to sort of again shall shall i say it you know be the bell of the ball and and stand on top of the stage but but eloquently so and i hope that we've we've done that for the people of melbourne so it's the the hero or the heroine of your love story 
it ultimately is, isn't it? It's it's the it's it, you're back to it again. It's the lighthouse beacons shining solely on on one spot across the water, but it gets double sort of coverage. That reflection thing is is something that again I'll say it's it's quite fascinating when you think that a tree that is quite simply matte green, but going into losing its leaves, it's coming to the end of its this annual cycle is now the bell of the ball and I, I, that uh, yeah it's, it's there's a little bit of poetry in my head and it's and we're standing as we said before near the lake and, and that's of course where a lot of trees are reflected as well and one of the i think interesting things well perhaps in australia perhaps less or more so depending on your perspective but we don't have as many deciduous trees mm. and so our parks and gardens do though so in melbourne gardens we have lots of deciduous trees and they're, they're very beautiful i love that seasonal change myself and when you're planting gardens, is that are you attracted to trees that lose their leaves? I'm trying to think. So hawthorn, um, hawthorn would lose its yeah. leaves, of course. I, 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 I remember having a conversation with a, with a park superintendent a long time ago, and I think when we were both chatting and on the same page, I should add, similar to me and you walking the gardens here. And it's important, I think, from. Uh, the landscape changing the way he was saying to me was that they try and design the landscape as i sort of would i'll bite theirs as vaster and grander uh, and ultimately the point became if you got married in december or june or august or april there'd still be a different landscape to go to but it's important i think that the the place to sit in december is extremely beautiful the place to sit in april is extremely beautiful but as it becomes a year older it evolves, and, and it, it's funny how, uh, and a quote that was said to me by, by, by a gentleman called Matthew Jebb, who was a botanic gardens curator in Dublin, and Matthew said to me, you know, if you don't change the landscape every 10 to 15 years, either nature will do it for you, or it will become old and decrepit. And it's a fascinating thing that's always stuck with me. If you think of the lifeline or the lifetime maybe of a deck, a hardwood deck maybe in Ireland, you might have 20 years, 15 years before it sort of gets a little bit dishevelled. It's not too dissimilar here, albeit it's not for wet reasons, it's for sun. And the landscape around it grows up and it changes, and so you do, yeah. Thank you very much, Peter. I think it's a lovely place to end on a, a changing landscape. Thank you so much, Tim. Genuine pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tim Entwistle there, friend of the program and formerly a director of the Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria, in conversation with garden designer Peter Donegan. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.